0: Good morning, Lakeview. If you would turn your Bible to Hebrews 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 4 as a part of our series, Jesus Christ, the glory of God revealed. We'll have one more message in this series next week on Revelation 5. Thank you, Josh. Praise band, praise team for leading us in worship, reminding us that our God is the Ancient of Days. One of my co laborers in the faith that we lost five years ago today to brain cancer. Robert Kahneman would say that the reality that our God is the ancient of days means at least this. Our God is not a novice. Amen? Amen? He is not a novice. And we know that supremely in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, if you would look with me in Hebrews 1... We'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also, He created the world. He is, that is, the Lord Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, amen, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that centers on the incarnate word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that by the spirit of our Lord Jesus this morning, That in the word today, you would revive our souls. You would make wise the simple. You would rejoice our hearts. You would enlighten our eyes. And Lord, may the preacher let the words of my mouth as the preacher and the meditation of all our hearts this morning be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord our rock and redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, asserts that one of the defining marks of our time is that God is now weightless. Now, now what does he mean when he says these words? What he's saying is that, largely speaking, in our culture... God is perceived as inconsequential. God is perceived as unimportant. And Wells is, Wells is being very intentional with his language for after all, the opposite of the word weightless is the word weighty. In fact, that word weighty is how we would translate the notion of glory. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word glory you would spell kavod, K-A-V-O-D. And in the New Testament, the Greek, the word glory is doxa, D-O-X-A in English. But this notion of glory speaks to God's weightiness, how utterly consequential He is, the gravity and the importance of God. Indeed, when the prophets spoke of God's glory, they meant just that, that he is weighty, that he is of utter consequence. In fact, uh, as the opposite of glory, uh, just for one example, the prophet Isaiah writes of withered grass. That's the opposite of glory. Isaiah 40, verses 5 to 8, drops from a bucket dust on the scales chapter 40, verse 15, an empty wind, chapter 41, verse 29. Now, while this notion of kavod, glory, means weightiness and of utter consequence, it's also virtually synonymous with our concept of light, L-I-G-H-T. Isaiah anticipated a day, get this, when the sun shall be no more your light by day. He's thinking of in the created order, and the creation proclaims the glory of God, correct? In the created order, the sun perhaps is the most most consequential created thing that speaks of God's glory outside of image bearers. And he says, in that day, the sun shall be no more your light by day, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. And so, the connection that Isaiah makes between the sun and the Lord, I think, is insightful. Again, in Psalm 19, as he's reflecting on how the creation preaches the glory of God, he thinks about the sun. And he says this in Psalm 19 the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, its rising is from the end of the heaven. And its circuit to the end of them. And then he says these words, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. He's saying that the sun is so weighty, the sun is so radiant that even now half the earth's population can observe it at this very moment. It has enough weightiness, it has enough radiance to be the center point of our solar system. It has enough gravitas to keep the other planets and the earth spinning on their appropriate orbits. And it has enough light to keep our planet teeming with life and light. Now you may remember 15 years ago this month, it's hard to believe it's been 15 years, but in August of 2006, the International Astronomical Union deemed the planet Pluto to be too small and inconsequential to be a planet. So they downgraded it to a dwarf planet. Now imagine the the planet Pluto. Imagine uh, if Pluto got upset at that new designation and, and Pluto decides he is going to take revenge with a plot to replace the sun. Well, we know that the the coup there would end up in utter disaster. Uh, With a surface uh, that's 98% of frozen nitrogen and a mass that's only 40 or about a quarter of the the earth's mass, it wouldn't have stood a chance against the sun's gravitas, the sun's weightiness. And a shift from a sun-centered to a Pluto-centered system would send all the other planets reeling into chaos and into the earth into cold lifelessness. Well, here's the point. If we place anything too small at the center of our lives, something that lacks sufficient cavode, something that lacks sufficient gravity, glory then we will drift towards chaos and into cold lifelessness and fruitlessness well that in a nutshell is the point of hebrews and the original audience was turning away from the lord jesus christ their only true source of life and light and they were looking to other centers other sources for life that were comparably weightless and in their particular case they were looking to judaism they were turning back to the old uh, sacrificial system and even the veneration of angels and so the writer here he responds to this drift to this rebellion by showing them how better and superior Jesus is than anything that you can put in his place now That's why this text is so important to us. It's very unlikely anyone in here is looking to animal sacrifices to replace Jesus. But every single one of us, every single one of us, every single day is tempted to center on less weightier things than our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why this passage is so important. It's a 72 word, one sentence passage in the original language. And it centers on the superiority of Jesus Christ over all things. Brings us to the first point. Because the Son of God has been exalted, that that is, he's been enthroned upon his victory, he is our last day's prophet. Look with me in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now, verse 1 would make any preacher happy because verse 1 is an alliteration in Greek. Uh, In fact, you have five different words in this one verse, all beginning with our English word, P. And so he says, "...at many times, in many ways, long ago, fathers and prophets." And this notion of long ago, it reminds us that from the very beginning, God has been a revealing God. But I think given the vast biblical illiteracy, even in our Western church, just for example, a recent uh, Gallup poll um, revealed this, that more than 50% of Graduates from high school believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. 12% of Americans think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. More than 50% cannot name the four Gospels. And get this, many who were polled, and I didn't get a percentage there, but many who were polled believe that the Sermon on the Mount was written by Billy Graham. Well, we talk about the good book in our culture, but the fact that we have such biblical illiteracy in our culture reveals that we don't truly believe that God reveals himself to us, that he is not a speaking, revealing God. But the first two verses of Hebrews debunks that notion. Now, God's Old Testament speech came to us in very uh, several mediums, um, visions and dreams and riddles and mouth-to-mouth self-disclosures to the patriarchs and, and to the prophets. Now, based on the writer's argument here, the implication isn't that the Old Testament is wrong. In fact, we would affirm fully that the Old Testament is the inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient Word of God. What he's saying is that the Old Testament was incomplete. It leaves us disappointed. It leaves us longing. In other words, it didn't have an ending. In fact, at the end of Malachi, the last word of the book is the word for curse. Our destruction it leaves us longing for something more for auburn fans attending the iron bowl in 2013 november 30th of 2013 if you had left the stadium before the last act you would have left disappointed You would have left longing for something more. But it's likely you stayed for the last act. That last act has been deemed kick six. The writer of Hebrews is saying we have the last act. We have the final word. We don't need another word. We don't need new revelation. We have it from God in the son notice in verse 2 but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son amen he has spoken to us by his son now in Deuteronomy 18:15 a prophet was promised and Moses is writing this and he says this prophet's going to be greater than Moses the prophet and greater than any other prophet that would, that would come under the old covenant. He would be one of the people of God, but he would be greater. And Moses writes, it is to him you shall listen. In fact, we know at the Mount of Transfiguration, when Peter, James, and John went up on that mountain with Jesus, they heard that voice voice. From the heavens, and what does the voice from the heavens declare? This is my son, listen to him. And here we have the last day's prophet. I love the children's catechism. One of the questions in the children's catechism is this why do we need a prophet? And the answer to that question is because we are ignorant. We are ignorant because of our fallibility. We are ignorant because of our finitude. We are finite beings. There's this notion of the noetic effects of sin. That is, our minds and our capacity to reason rightly are fallen by our sin. We need a prophet who will overcome our ignorance. And we have one. The writer of Hebrews is saying. And now, after musing on the Son of God, the last day's prophet... The writer now directs our attention to another critical truth for us as the people of God. Because the Son of God has been exalted, that is, he's been enthroned at the right hand of the Father, he is the last day's priest-king. That brings us uh, to uh, the second part of verse 2. Again, the children's catechism. Why do we need a priest? Because we're guilty. Why do we need a king? Because we are weak and we are helpless. And the writer of Hebrews is giving us this last day's prophet, priest, and king. Now, starting in the second part of verse two, all the way through the end of our passage, verse four, the writer here is going to present seven truths about this priest king. And I believe that number seven is intentional The reason I say that is because in verses 5 to 14, he lists seven Old Testament texts that he ascribes to Jesus. The number seven being the number for perfection, uh, the number for completion, and that's the point. He is demonstrating to us the complete supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first point he makes about this priest king, he is the messianic heir. Now, for those of you that may not know what that word Messiah means, literally it means anointed one. the word Messiah is the Hebrew word for the one who would come, who would fix the broken things. And here he is the messianic heir. Notice, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, this is an allusion to Psalm 2, verse 8, where... The psalm reads, ask of me, God the Lord says, to the anointed son, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. The writer of Hebrews is saying, in the son of God, we have the fulfillment of that psalm. Now here's the question, why would the writer add this here? There's a whole lot of things he could say about Jesus, but here he says he is the heir of all things. I think it's because he wants us, the people of God, to meditate on the truth that our prophet, our priest, our king will ultimately make good on his promises. The reason I say that, he's the heir of all things, which means all things are his. So for instance, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, not Billy Graham, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. He can make that promise, and you can bank on that promise because he's the heir of the earth. He's the one that's going to inherit all things. He's the one who's in control. That brings us to the second point that this writer wants to make about this priest king. Notice he's the agent of creation. We saw that in Colossians 1, didn't we? Notice through whom also. He created the world. That's remarkable. This is a definitive witness to Jesus' deity. He performs works that are unique to God alone. In this particular case, creation. And so not only was the world made for him, he's the heir. All things were made by him. There cannot be any stronger proof of his lordship than what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. If you're the one for whom something was made and by that was made, then you are its rightful Lord. And that's why sin for us is spiritual embezzlement. God takes sin seriously because it's spiritual embezzlement. You're taking something in the creation that only rightly belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and you're using it for your purposes that's how serious sin is but the writer's not done notice with me in verse three he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the main clause here in verse 3 is this. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, that's one of the most important truths you could ever meditate upon. He sat down. And so everything else in verse 3 serves that assertion. So literally, you could translate verse 3 this way. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. What's he doing? He's seeking to awaken us from our spiritual slumbers so that we won't be tempted By things of less gravity, of less glory. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That brings us to the third point that the writer is making about this priest king. Notice, Jesus is the fullness of God. Notice, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. Again, this is a definitive witness to Jesus' deity. Now, the word radiance here means that God's glory is supremely revealed in the Son. You know, you read, and we could go on and on about this, but all, all of these Old Testament visions of God describe him as bright, as shiny, as, as glorious. Exodus twenty four ten. You remember in Exodus 34, when Moses descended from that mountain, he had been in the presence of God. His face was so bright that the people couldn't come near him. It's because Moses reflected the radiance of God. Like the moon reflects the sun. The writer of Hebrews is saying something much greater than that. Moses reflected the radiance. Jesus is the radiance of the Lord. Indeed, he is the exact imprint of God's nature. In fact, this is where God the Son, the Son of God, is different than human sons. Uh, None of my sons, many people tell me that Nate looks a lot like me. He takes that as a compliment. (laughs) But none of my sons are the exact imprint. None of them. But Jesus, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is the exact imprint of God. He and God are of the same essence. And that's why he can be, and that brings us to the fourth point he's making about this this priest king, he is the universe's sustainer. I mean, you can spend a whole lot of time on this one passage, can't you? It's kind of like an overture, by the way. If you've ever been to a, uh, a play or you've gone to see a, a, a concert, oftentimes the, the orchestra will play an overture. kind of whets your appetite for what's coming. And That's really what Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is. It's an overture of the rest of Hebrews. But notice, he is the universe's sustainer. Notice, he upholds the universe. That is unbelievable. Unre- it's just remarkable. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Of course, we know that God brought the universe into being by a word, the word of the Son of God. So not only in creation and not only in new creation, you were brought To be a new creation by the word of the gospel. But also by this word, he works providentially to uphold the universe. By the very speech, by the very word of Christ. Again, this is another definitive witness to the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He performs works that are unique to God. In this case, providence. Now I want you to notice this word upholds. Uh, we would pronounce this word pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O um, in English. And, and it, it's a very interesting word. Uh, it, it's, it, it's not the picture of, an, of, of Jesus as a kind of atlas who just carries the world on his shoulders. No, that's not what this word means. It means that he's carrying it from one point to a destination. He has a plan. He has a purpose. What is that plan? What is that purpose? The purpose is this. God's purpose in Jesus Christ is to establish his saving reign, his covenantal presence, and his authority over every nook and cranny of this universe through King Jesus. And Jesus is sustaining all things to bring about that very point. And he will. And we know he will because he has sat down. He has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, the Lord is not the God of the deist. Many of our founding fathers were deists who believed that after creating the world, um, he just kind of wound it up like a clock and just let it run on its own. The writer of Hebrews is saying, the Son of God is persistently and personally sustaining involved in sustaining the universe even the fact that your heart is beating this morning is because of the preserving work of the son of God how can you not worship him for that now remarkably this is remarkable while the son of God is sustaining the universe notice the fifth point the writer makes he made purification for sins He didn't stop sustaining the universe while he went to Golgotha and made purification of sins. Notice, after making purification for sins. Now, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. John Flavel, the Puritan, made that point. And so, until we understand the gravity of our sin, we won't celebrate truths like this after making purification for sins. You know, the first sin that Adam committed as our federal head did not stand alone. In that very moment, when Adam entertained sin in his thoughts, in his imagination, in his affections, in his will, at that moment, a treacherous sin change took place in him this is evident from the fact that immediately after the fall adam and eve not only tried to hide from god they tried to hide from each other and paul says that has all uh has all the consequences for us romans 5:12 through one man sin into the world and death through sin And death to all men, for all have sinned in Adam. And so, before the fall, I want you to think about this. Before the fall, our reason, our thoughts, our our will, our physical abilities were weapons of righteousness before the fall. But now... By the mysterious operation of sin in all of us, these weapons of righteousness have been converted into weapons of unrighteousness. That's our sin dilemma. We're born guilty and we're born pervasively corrupt. That's why John Piper was correct. He says, our biggest problem are not the sins we commit. That's the fruit. That's the apple on the tree. Our biggest problem is the fact that we are under sin. Our sin disposition that that produces the fruit of our sins. And what is that sin? It's when the glory of God is not honored. It's when the greatness of God is not admired. It's when the beauty of God is not treasured. It's when the presence of God is not prized. It's when the person of God is not loved. The power of God, not praised. It's when the justice of God is not respected. The wrath of God is not feared. The grace of God, not cherished. The goodness of God, not savored. The truth of God, not sought. And the faithfulness of God, not trusted. That is sin, as Piper teaches us. By its nature... Get this, sin is unforgivable. By its nature, sin is unforgivable. Every sin, by its nature, deserves not forgiveness. It deserves death. And yet here, Jesus, the Son of God, made purification for sins. It's a remarkable gospel that we have. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 17, the writer will go on and say, He propitiated God's wrath on our sin. That means He satisfied the wrath of God on our sin. In chapter 9, verse 22, it says that Jesus secured the forgiveness of sins for those who believe. In chapter 9, verse 26, He put away sin. Isn't that beautiful? And then in chapter 10, verse 4, He took away sin. And here, he made purification for our sins. Now, I want you to notice this language of after making. The purification that was made was once for all. It's in the past. It happened 2,000 years ago for every single person who would trust in Jesus. Never repeated. For all your sins, past, present, and future, he made purification for sins. Now, when you, when you realize that by faith, it gives you a new perspective on your sin, doesn't it? It makes you want to run. It makes you want to flee. It makes you want to turn from your sin because of the price that was paid for making purification for your sins. That brings us to the sixth point that the writer is making here about this priest king. Jesus was exalted. Notice, he sat down at the right hand of God he says of the majesty I love that language he's worshiping as he writes he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high he sat down to give expression to the cry that he made on the cross it is finished he sat down because it was finished when he cried to tell it is finished he was raised he ascended to the father And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, it's interesting. He's being depicted here not only as a king, but as a priest. Do you know that in the temple there were no chairs? In fact, later on in Hebrews, the writer will explain this. We have this on the board. In Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says, But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins. You get that? For all time. For every sin that you could ever commit, for every believer, for all time, he, he offered that sacrifice. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his, for his feet. What's he doing right now? He's waiting until his enemies are made a footstool. You shouldn't fret about what's in the news. You shouldn't fret by what's in the culture. The son of God sat down and he's just waiting. One day, all things are going to be placed underneath his feet. And notice it says, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected. That's remarkable for all time, those who are being sanctified. In fact, that word perfected is actually in the original language a perfect tense. What does that mean? That means it's happened in the past and it has ongoing permanent effects. He has perfected you once for all forever. And it's not based on your performance, it's based on the completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a reference, by the way, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse in the New Testament, 38 times. You think it's important? The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the Son of God, we have the fulfillment of that promise. That right hand signals power. It it signals victory. And it's ours because we're in the Son of God. How Would our spiritual states, how would our emotional states be if we saw Jesus the way the writer of Hebrews sees him? It would be almost impossible to be anxious, wouldn't it? It would be almost impossible to be discouraged. Or even to get jealous of others if we saw the Son of God the way the writer of Hebrews sees the Son of God. Indeed, in spite of what we see on the news, Jesus is not going to lose in the end. He sat down. There's nothing that can put him back in the tomb, and there's nothing that can take him off the throne. And Lakeview needs to believe that. And that brings us to the final point that the writer makes about this priest game. Verse 4. He is superior to the angels. That might surprise some people in this culture. But notice, having become as much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So, this is the saga time. We see inheritance language. Verse 5, we can't get into verse 5 because of time, tells us the name he has inherited. What is that name? The Son. Now, you may ask yourself, and it's a very legitimate question, wasn't he already the son? Yes, he was. He is the eternal son of God. He didn't just become the son when he took on human flesh. So what does the writer mean here? Well, let's use the Reformation principle of interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Paul explains that in Romans 1-4. And here's what Paul said. Jesus was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Notice, by his resurrection from the dead. So he's always been, in eternity past, the Son of God. Just as he's always been the heir. He's always been the heir. But when Jesus made purification for sins and rose victoriously and was enthroned at the right hand of God, he was declared the Son of God in a new way. He was declared the heir in a new way. Now he reigns as the victorious God-man, the Son of God, not only by his eternal right, but by the right of his victory. That's why he was able to say in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. He already had that authority. Long before he took on human flesh, he had that authority. But now he has that authority as the victorious God-man for us and our salvation. And here, the writer introduces one of his favorite words. It's got to become one of our favorite words then. The word here, superior. Maybe your translation reads better. It's a good translation. Um, In fact, he will use that same word throughout uh, Hebrews And he'll interchange, or our translation interchanges in the ESV, superior, are better. So, for instance, in Jesus, believers have a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19. In Jesus, believers have a better covenant. Chapter 7, verse 22. In Jesus, believers have a better sacrifice. Chapter 9, verse 23. In Jesus, we have a better possession, chapter 10, verse 34. In Jesus, we have a better resurrection, chapter 11, verse 35. And in Jesus, we have better blood than Abel's. And he is saying here in verse 4, addressing a real issue, the veneration of angels who were the mediators of the law, he is saying he has become as much better superior to the angels as the name he has inherited now in the scriptures the angels are remarkable beings they are God's attendants they are God's servants and every time without without an exception every time they show up to a human they have to say to that human don't fear Because that would have been the natural response. You encounter an angel, and you're going to be scared out of your wits. Don't fear. They were remarkable beings. But they were just created beings. That's all that they were. And the original audience had begun to idolize them. Even today, many people are fascinated by angels. If you want to have a best-selling book, write a book on angels. We love books on angels. The fact that we don't know much about angels makes them easy to worship because you can, you can create your own religion. That's what we love today, isn't it, in our pagan world. We love to create our own religions. In fact, you go to a funeral today. How many times have you been to a funeral and you heard the preacher say or someone giving a testimony that mama is now an angel? Well, that's just nonsense. Nonsense. Angels and humans are two different beings, two different creatures. And here the writer is addressing that. So are the angels magnificent? Yes, they're magnificent. They are ministers of God sent to be his servants. The writer's saying, but when you see Jesus, and when you see him in all of his glory, his doxa, his magnificence, his weightiness, you see the relative weightlessness of the angels and anything else in the created order you could pursue. And so we see here in this text that centers on Jesus Christ, the radiance of God's glory, that he is the last days prophet, priest, and king. As our prophet, get this, he reveals by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. As our priest, he made purification of sins. He offered himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to God, and he makes continual intercession for us. Amen? And as our king, he subdues us to himself. He rules over us. He defends us, and get this, he restrains and conquers all of his And all of our enemies. Indeed, he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When we see Jesus, the fullness of deity, dwelling bodily, we see the only one who has the gravity, who has the glory to keep us centered, to keep us flourishing, to keep us fruitful. No. God's not unimportant. God's not inconsequential. God is not weightless. Look at the Son of God. And this was written to believers. But this has a significant, significant implication for unbelievers. The only way you can have your sins forgiven is to flee to Christ. He's the only one who's ever made purification for sins once for all. He's the only one who's been raised from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the majesty on high. So don't fool yourself. But here's the deal. Here's the good news. You can come to him. And no matter what sins you've ever committed or presently committing, you can have your sins cleansed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Josh and the praise team comes forward, Uh, We're going to give you an opportunity. Maybe you just have questions, questions about the gospel. Uh, It's a glorious gospel. Maybe you don't understand all the implications of the gospel. We're going to have pastors here at the front row. We want to give you an opportunity to respond in the obedience of faith to this gospel, to this son who is our prophet, our priest, and king. Let's stand and sing.